0: Lock Talk Radio.
1: From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them well, good afternoon or good after whenever you're listening to the program. The program airs live of course at three thirty p m Eastern time every Monday that's afternoon, but lots of folks tell me that that's not exactly when they listen to the program, but whenever you're listening, I'm delighted that you are joining in today. Um, we have uh any town high school with us again today, which is spectacular. Any um, Anytown High School is uh, learning how to do collaborative problem solving bravely live uh, on the air. And uh, that's about as cool as it gets. Although, um, having spoken with them just a little bit before the program, they sound like they're running on fumes a little today. So we'll have to see what that's about. But let me uh, do the usual introductory stuff here. Um, today, wh- when I'm working with Anytown High School, t- probably not the ideal uh, day to call in. Um, but I guess it wouldn't be tragic if you did. That number is six four six seven two seven two six nine one. If you feel like today's not the ideal day to call in, send me an email through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website, and that's www.livesinthebalance.org. Uh, fair warning, I'll be posting a new rendition of the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems on the Eliza the Balance website uh, sometime this week. Um, hmm. It's pretty much got the same items on it, but it's intended to reflect the flow of information that the LSIP is intended to gather. Um, but let's, uh, you know what, enough of me talking. Let's turn our attention to the folks at Anytown High School. You're on the air, Anytown. How are you all today? Okay. I'm doing well. Okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, uh, how, how are your uh, – we, we, you know, we've done a few sessions with you all um, completing the ALSEP for the student named T. Then we had, because of my vacation and your vacation, uh, a longer-than-we-had-hoped-for break. But here we are again. And, um, well, first of all, before we hear about your efforts at doing the empathy step with T., um, and we've lost a little bit of momentum here just because of the um, vacation schedules. Um, anything that you all have any questions about related to any part of implementing the model before we hear how your efforts at Plan B have
2: gone? Yeah. Hi, this is Lucy. Um Good. The big question I have is, well, the way we're set up here at um, our high school is we're um, sectioned off into teams, and I really don't understand how we're supposed to be doing this with the students. And what I mean by that is, as a team, does each teacher meet with that individual student? So the teach the student is seeing teachers five times for Plan B, or the team chooses one teacher to meet with the student? I just don't understand how that's really supposed to work in a sort of team setting.
1: Great question. So let's answer it. Um, the Plan B flowchart provides us, with um, remember in our last session, we prioritized what unsolved problems we were going to be working with T on
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah prioritizing the prioritizing piece is very important because um we can't work with T on everything at once. We can only work with her on two or three things at a time, otherwise she's going to get overwhelmed. we' are going to get overwhelmed. So on the plan B flow chart, not only are we designating the unsolved problems that we're going to be working on with T, we're also designating the um, person who's going to be doing plan B with her on that particular unsolved problem. And so, no, I think that T, like a lot of kids, even if a particular unsolved problem cut across multiple classes, the goal is to at least initially have one person, maybe two, Uh, arranging to do Plan B with her on that unsolved problem. May we be gathering information about that unsolved problem and in terms of the degree to which it affects other people in the building, other people who could be doing Plan B with her? Yes. But no, I would say that five Plan Bs on the same problem would be overkill. Um, What we're doing here is we're trying to get information. Um, We don't want to have too many people doing it at once. Is that the answer you were looking for?
2: Yeah, so the team would decide that one teacher would meet over a certain issue, and then after that to continue. See where it goes from there. Yeah, the same teacher could continue or could switch off to another teacher. That's correct, or have
1: have another teacher join in. Um, You know, sometimes over the course of Plan B with one teacher, um, it becomes clear that we need another teacher present in which case we arrange for the second Plan B to have the other teacher present. I would say that early on here, as you are just getting your feet wet with Plan B, you want to – well, in in your case, you want to be having members of the core group, the group that we've got working on it right now, being the ones who get their feet wet first. Um, Then, perfectly fine to start expanding it to other people – but one of our goals is to have you all get good at it early on so that you can guide other people who are newer to the process in their Plan B efforts um, once they start trying to get their feet wet.
3: Good? Dr. Green, this is uh, Wilfred. I'm the school counselor for this team. I'm not sure if all your listeners are aware that those uh, who are participating in this, uh, what you're referring to as a core group, uh, we are actually all part of a team. So um, I think that's a, a point mm-hmm. worth uh, keeping track of. Yep.
1: Other questions before we hear about your efforts in the Plan B territories?
2: Anybody?
1: Nope. Nope. Anyone all right. Let, not so far, anyway. Okay, let's hear. Anybody want to? Tell us about uh, Plan B, the empathy step at least, that you attempted with T over any of the unsolved problems that we decided we were going to be working on with her. How did it go?
2: This is is Zena. I worked with Donna, the math teacher, on, you know, just getting T to talk about when she feels the most frustrated. And we had sort of identified amongst ourselves at one of our previous meetings that we thought T had the most difficulties when she's doing test taking. And we had several conversations with T where we, you know, scheduled an appointment with her, we pulled her out of class, and both Donna and I sat with her, and just got into some discussions. We tried to keep it fairly light. We would maybe ask her about some of the things that were going on that we had noticed right away, but it sort of all came back to the frustration of taking tests. And, you know, T was able to articulate that herself, which I thought was interesting, where she pointed that aspect of it out before we even had to lead into it at all.
1: So the unsolved problem that you ended up talking with T about in terms of you two was difficulty taking tests. Yes. And what did you learn when drilling for information, if it got to this point, about T's difficulty taking tests?
2: Well, we just kept coming up on a block. Like, we were trying to find different ways to get T expressing how she felt, and we ran into that, I'm not really sure, I don't know. She would sort of describe to us the emotional state, but there wasn't necessarily a specific type of problem that she could identify as being the most difficult for her. And okay, so we found and what, that it was kind of difficult. Like we didn't really know the best way to get around the I don't know question. I, mean, I know we had talked about that before, but we kept stumbling on that when we would meet with her.
1: Got it. So um, let's see if we can get past I don't know for the next time. One of the things about doing Plan B is you bump into roadblocks or bump into whatever you bump into. I'm not sure I'd call them roadblocks. Um, And then you go back to try to figure out what happened. You think about strategies that are available to you given what happened. And then you jump right back in. So um, one possibility for why T was primarily telling you about feelings is that that may have been what we were asking her about. You'd know better than me. And I typically stay away, not that I'm allergic to it, but I typically stay away from asking a kid what they're feeling in the empathy step. Um, there are five strategies for drilling for information. And then, then we'll talk a little bit more about I don't know. Five strategies for drilling for information. Strategy number one, asking questions beginning with the words who, what, where, or when. And what those questions are intended to get at are things related to why are... First of all, are there some tests that are more difficult than others? What tests are more difficult than others? Uh, Are there any particular times when she might have a harder time taking tests than others? One of the things that drilling for information is intended to get at is the situationality, if there's such a word, um, of the difficulty that we're talking with the student about. So that's one direction for drilling. That's one, uh, questions beginning with who, what, where, and or when. Another is to, and this is similar to what I was just asking about, to asking the student why the unsolved, about whether the unsolved problem occurs under certain conditions and not others. And that, too, gets at the situational aspects of the unsolved problem, and that tends to give us more information. Another strategy is to break the unsolved problem down into its component parts. Test-taking has a variety of components. There's studying for the test. There's the actual taking of the test. There's the – and what goes on during it and what the test requires. Um, There's after the test. There's thinking about what other people are, how the other people are doing on the test. There's comparing oneself, components, a third drilling strategy. A fourth drilling strategy, all of these, by the way, intended to get us out of I don't know or answers from the student that simply don't take us very far, is to ask the student what he or she is thinking in the midst of the unsolved problem. So it would sound like T, not feeling, notice. When I ask students what they're feeling, I often get happy, sad, or mad, and while that's fine, um, or some variant of happy, sad, or mad, while that's fine, um, I'm more interested in what the student is thinking because that's more likely to lead me to their concern or perspective than what they're feeling about the unsolved problem. And then the fifth strategy is to ask clarifying statements like, how so? Or well, I don't quite understand. Or can you say more about that? Or I'm confused. Um, statements that are aimed at simply keeping the student talking uh, and clarifying. So now let's go. And now let's go. Let's go to I don't know real quickly before because I don't want to talk too much. I want to hear more from you all more. Um, I don't know. I'm often thinking about why a student would be saying I don't know. Um, Among the different hypotheses, the student doesn't trust us yet. Um, The student has had a lot of plan A in his or her life so that he or she believes that no matter what he or she says, um, plan A is right around the bend. But the most common reason I hear students saying I don't know is because they don't know. Now, one more point. Sometimes we get I don't know because the unsolved problem we were working on is too vague. And here's what I mean by that. T takes tests in many classes. The answer to what's hard about taking tests could be different across classes. If we ask T a question like, we've noticed that test-taking is hard for you, what's up? Then we've actually placed, we've made answering harder for T because now T has to think about the different classes in which she might take tests, the different reasons test-taking might be hard in each different class, and the fact that well, the truth is, the answer to the question might be different for each different class. And often kids, not just T, and I'm just hypothesizing here for why T might have gone the I don't know direction, often kids faced with that amount of information, different classes that they have to think about, different reasons for having the same problem in those different classes. The amount of information that is now percolating is too much. And what do they say when it's too much? They say, I don't know. Now let's go back to T. Were we talking about test-taking in general or test-taking in a particular class?
2: When we had met with her, we specified a quiz that she had taken in a math class.
1: Great. That's specific enough. Can you give us, as best as you can remember it, a a, um, recounting of how the conversation went and when we ended up at I don't know?
2: Um, It was a while ago now, so bear with me. But we had brought up to T that we noticed she had had trouble taking that quiz and that she had gotten, you know, a little agitated by it. And we asked her what types of problems did she feel like she was getting stuck on or, you know, did she feel differently doing problems on the test or not did she feel differently, but, like, what was she thinking about when she took the problems on the test versus when she had done it on the homework because she had done them fine there. And some of what we had heard back was at first she would go, "No, I don't know, miss. It's just when I get frustrated, I feel like, you know, I can't read through the problem. The words are different from when we did it before. She Hmm. would that she was frustrated and maybe say that when the teacher comes over and you know, reiterates the question in a slightly different way then she would be able to figure out what's going on, but if she doesn't get mm-hmm. that help or feedback right away that she would feel like she couldn't do it and she would just stop and that would be the end of it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well now this is interesting because while you may not you may not feel that you got much information I feel that you got some pretty decent information. But at what point, so we can go back to that in a second, but at what point did T start saying, I don't know? What kinds of questions led us to, I don't know?
2: She'd pretty much preempt every question with, I don't know. Like, we would have to prod her a little bit or even just rephrase the same questions we were asking her. Uh Uh-huh. And And
1: then... Then would you get past, I don't know?
2: Eventually we'd get a little ways past it, but I felt like a lot of the time we would end up having to make a suggestion that she might agree with or disagree with before we could get there. Mm
1: -hmm. Which isn't tragic, not ideal, obviously, because you want to stay as far away from leading the witness as possible. But um, this piece of information that T did give us, and I'm not... Sure, how you got there, but did you suggest that the item might not be exactly the same as um, her, how she understood it, or is that something that came straight out of her?
2: No, we had asked her, you know, what she was, what she's doing as she reads the question, or something along those lines, and she brought up that the words are different, and she wanted the teacher to explain it, like when she hears it, it helps her. She didn't well, exactly say when she hears it, it helps her. But she said, when you come over and explain to me what it's saying, then I get it. But if it's just on the paper and it doesn't look the same, and then she go, I don't know. I just get frustrated.
0: Well,
1: it could be. You know, I always tell people to over drill rather than under drill. Um, I'm always telling people. Uh, I'd rather uh, over-drill and annoy the kid than under-drill and move into the rest of Plan B with only a very vague sense of the kid's concern or perspective. But it's possible that T gave us something really important, and that is – and then, then of course, T did something that we know T does. Uh, If she gets frustrated, she um, sort of throws in the towel, and sometimes she runs out of the room, sometimes she just sort of quits on us, but – I feel like we got a pretty important piece of information from T, and that is when I'm reading the item, there are many times that I don't understand it, when you come over and either read it to me or explain it further, I get it, and then I can answer it. I don't want to make anything up here. Is that what we're hearing from her?
2: Yeah. I guess it's just a little confusing for me because she can do, like, group work and other activities where there's, a change in the verbiage of the question in class without too much problem. It just seems to be like when it's an assessment situation, very individual and the room is supposed to be quiet, that all of a sudden she's freaking out about these things that don't seem to normally faze her as badly. Well,
1: and all all I would do there is try to pay attention to the specific um, differences between when she's able to do what it is that we are asking her to do and when we're not and the only thing that comes to mind is during you know there's a big difference between an assessment uh and and so let me ask this did did you ask her that why under some conditions is she able to do it and others is she not that's actually one of our drilling strategies is that something that you asked uh
2: don't remember entirely off the top of my head. I was trying not to take notes, so okay. I don't yeah, have yeah, that kind of thing, and it was a while ago, so I don't remember specifically.
1: Yep. That it, it, Let's say you didn't ask it. That would be a logical question to ask, and that's our second drilling uh, strategy. Why under some conditions and not others? Because um, that's really what's sort of intriguing us at the moment. It's intriguing me let me ask this. During class discussions – now, of course, I'm drilling with you uh, – during the times when T is able to do this, is it is it written down, or is the main issue one's a test and the other's not, but they're both written? They're
2: both written. It's not like one is a verbal cue and one is only on paper.
1: Well, and because that's good to know, because she's clearly telling us that verbal is easier for her. But, of course, this this brings up, this is what I would probably be asking T next, which is, you know, I'm thinking, there are times when at least it seems to me that you reading the instructions and getting what it's asking is not so hard for you, like during ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, And other times when reading the instructions and understanding what you're supposed to do next is hard for you, Um, like on a test. What do you think the difference is between those two? And now you're just doing a good job of drilling, but still searching for the ingredient. And by the way, all along assuming... That she has a legitimate concern. She's not trying to pull one over on us. She's not faking it under one condition and not under another. That there is truly something that we don't know yet that we're trying to find out. Um, But now you've got my curiosity up. Um, I wonder what the difference is between times when she can do it and times when she can't. It's, It's interesting. We often... Leap to the conclusion. I'm not saying anybody in our Anytown High School group is doing this, but we often leap to the conclusion that because a student can do something under one condition, they ought to be able to do it in another condition, when in fact, there are often not so easy to notice nuances about the situation they can do versus the situation they can't do. That often provides us with the information we're looking for about why they can do it under one circumstances, not under another. But it feels to me like that might be the question that I might ask next. But I'm very happy for the information we've gotten out of tea so far. I know that we weren't too happy with the I don't know's, and I'm not sure you still what questions elicited an I don't know. And I know that this was, you know, we've, we've, taken some time off here between doing plan b and actually getting back together again which of course is not ideal but let me ask this can we go back and follow up with t about this unsolved problem and ask some additional questions now that we're talking so that we can probe a little bit further drill a little bit further and see if we can get a handle on what's going on yeah good
2: one one issue that we did have, because we met with her on a few different occasions about this, yep. was she does, I think she does have a fairly good relationship with both of the teachers that were involved, but she likes to talk about, like, different situations. Like, she would get us a little bit off track. Like, she really wanted to talk about a birthday that she had coming up, or she wanted to talk about, you know, a different situation with some of the girls in one of the other classes, And, you know, she really wanted to talk, but she kind of wanted to direct what it was about. How do you keep them on on track with what you want to talk about and not, you know, make them feel like you're just beating them over the head with one thing when they actually want to talk to you about other stuff?
1: These are great questions. Um, You know, in early Plan Bs, my rule of thumb is, um, I encourage people to be a little bit more flexible in what it is that they're hearing about in early Plan Bs because our goal really is to have this kid talking. And so I'm a little less... um, um, I'm more flexible on where the empathy step goes early on because to tell you, in my early work in Plan B with kids, and I encourage others to be the same, because um, some kids have had a lot to say. I don't know if T is one of them. sounds like we've had conversations with T before Plan B. But some kids are so accustomed to Plan A, so accustomed to having their concerns blown off the table, so accustomed to not being asked, that there's a lot of things they've been chomping at the bit to talk about for a very long time, and... So here's Plan B coming along, and we are letting the kid know we really want to hear what she has to say. And some kids have had a lot to say for a very long time, and in early Plan Bs in particular, I find that later Plan Bs tend to be more focused because we've heard about everything that we need to hear about, and now the kid is actually able to focus on the thing that we got them talking about. But early Plan Bs in particular tend to be take longer, tend to be more wide-ranging, Just because of the fact that this kid has had a lot to say for a very long time, and by golly, now we're listening, we're going to hear about it. Hmm. So I guess that's what my attitude would be. Since we are doing early plan B with T, I'm probably going to be a little more flexible, perhaps a lot more flexible, in terms of letting it go where it goes, just because I'm so happy that T is talking. And then, slowly but surely, bring things back to the unsolved problem that we started with, um and see if we can make some headway on that one as well later plan b's once again tend to be more focused because the kid has now gotten a lot of what had been unsaid for a very long time said and no need for that anymore i'm more i'm more flexible in early plan b's than i am in later plan b's Does
3: that help yeah uh dr green again this is a wilfred the school counselor uh i guess probably in support of what you're saying um uh, tea was, was sent to me because uh, she was upset about something. Um, and uh, we just got to talking a lot, and she was telling me about her life, and she was showing me this uh, this book that she keeps. uh turns out that she seems to be rather a perfectionist. Uh-huh. And this is, I guess you might call this sort of taking an end run around You know, we weren't directly talking about what she got sent to me about, but then it struck me, well, I wonder if this perfectionism is part of the problem with the frustration with test-taking. And and again, again, a similar thing. um, What she got sent to me about was she got, got to class a little bit late, and she's been feeling lately like she's really doing the best she can and doing well, and she has the... The respect of her teachers and, and, and all this and and she got to class late and got into a little bit of trouble for it and got very upset, which again seemed to me could you know perhaps related to this perceived perfectionism, where she wasn't sort of coming up to to uh, to to the standard that she had set for herself and, and to which she expected other people to, to uh, believe that uh, she was capable of. Um, you know, here's the cool thing about Plan B.
1: We're going to be learning a lot about T. And one of the vibes I have on T is that she can be a pretty black and white, and this came up when we were going over her lagging skills um, during our first, during our second and third sessions, um, something I've been encouraging lots of people to listen to in, in my talks in various places, because I think um, you all provided lots of people – with a great example of what a discussion is supposed to sound like with the ALSEP as the discussion guide. But one of the things we were hearing about T when we were going through the lagging skills um, is that T can be a very black and white thinker who does have difficulty with change. And here we are talking about items on a test not being exactly the way she thought they'd be worded or not tapping exactly into the way they were taught or not helping her figure out exactly what's being asked. And, um, boy, that sounds pretty black and white and inflexible to me. And perfectionism, I often find, is a very common feature in kids who are very black and white thinkers. They get a certain idea about the way things are supposed to turn out in their head, and that's it. They've, they've got it configured, and it's very difficult for them to move outside of their original configuration. So while we would need to hear more about T, and you know perfectionism is sort of a rather global term, but we're starting to accumulate some pretty good information that T goes into situations with a certain notion about the way things are going to be and about the way things should be, and brings along with her her own expectations of herself, and perhaps we haven't heard a lot about this yet. Perhaps her expectations of others as well. Don't 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 quite have a handle on that one yet. And then, if things deviate from her configuration, that's very hard for her. And what we might be talking about now with the test taking is a specific situation in which those factors combine uh, to come together in a very specific unsolved problem, test taking, while we're learning about test taking, we're not just learning about test taking, we're learning about T in general. While we're solving the problem of test taking, or quiz taking in this ta- in this case, we may be coming to solutions that may serve us very well on other unsolved problems that are set in motion by the same constellation of lagging skills. So believe it or not, I expect this to get easier over time. The early plan Bs are the hard ones, both because T might be rather wide-ranging here because she's talking and she's got a lot to talk about, Um, but we are slowly but surely learning about T, her approach to the world, and how the lagging skills that she brings to the table uh, interface with demands that we're placing on her to produce some of T's worst outcomes. I'm ecstatic with how much we're learning about her. We don't necessarily have a lot to show for it yet, um, but we have plenty to show for it already, believe it or not. But yes, perfectionism, believing that things are going to be a certain way and uh, you know, having a great deal of difficulty when things don't conform to that original configuration, very common in kids who we call black and white thinkers living in a gray world, very common.
3: Mm-hmm. Anybody,
1: you. you bet, any uh, other attempts at plan B with T or anybody else um, that people want to tell us about?
0: Well, this is Rob. I'm um, her English teacher, and um, the task that I have been given was uh, working on the uh, lagging skill of listening and writing at the same time without getting so frustrated. And, and we'll uh, call
1: that an, un- let's, let's be technical, we'll, we'll call that an unsolved problem. Okay,
0: and uh, what, uh, what I found is, um, I think she was, I don't want to use the word overwhelmed, but I think because um, she was working with uh, Donna and Zena on the other you know, issue is that um, she wasn't as willing to engage with the issue that I was wanting to tackle. And so our conversations were rather short you know, and resulted, I think, rather quickly, and I don't know. And so I didn't push it a lot because I saw that we were making progress on the other end. So that was one of the things that I was concerned about was, okay, when you have these multiple issues, is, you know, should you be pursuing more than one at one time? You know, and, or should you be looking for where you get the most traction and then going with that one?
1: Well, you know, that's a judgment call. The interesting thing is, uh, I mean, I hate to say this, but just because, you know, we're starting with three high priority unsolved problems. The thing is, especially early on with Plan B, but this can also happen later on, when you're doing the empathy step, sometimes the original unsolved problem is morphing into multiple unsolved problems. And so, yes, I know that we tried to be exhaustive in our, in coming up with our list of unsolved problems, but often when you're doing the empathy step with a student over one of the high-priority unsolved problems that we picked. We learned that there are others. Now, which should you pick? Totally a judgment call. And I can't say that I have an algorithm for you. Um, It would be tempting to pick the unsolved problem that we started with. It is just as fine. Sometimes when you're hearing about other unsolved problems, you're sitting there as the listener saying, wow, that feels like one that we should be working on instead of, and this is only because you've learned more in the empathy step, that feels like one that we should be working on. And truth is, you can always check in with the student about this by saying something like, "And you you know, I've given you the five drilling strategies, but there are a few other strategies that you can use while you're drilling. One is to summarize so as a student is talking, and, you know, we're, we're doing the empathy step and we're gathering information, um, sometimes we're hearing about multiple concerns, multiple unsolved problems. So just to give an example, a video that I sometimes show during advanced trainings that I do is of a boy younger than he, an uh, uh, elementary school kid, who was having trouble sitting in reading group. So here's this sequence of things we heard about, while we were drilling for information on that unsolved problem. The unsolved problem being uh, doesn't want to go to a reading group. Here's here's one concern. Uh, the buttons in his pants make it hard for him to sit on the floor. All right, buttons in pants would be uh, an unsolved problem. Uh, the floor is dirty. The dirty floor would be a reason that he wouldn't be sitting on the floor. Um, one of his friends is constantly whispering in his ear, His friend whispering in his ear might be a reason that he is having difficulty sitting in reading group. Um, And then as we drilled further, all of those are legitimate, by the way, but what we're doing is we're still drilling and trying to get as comprehensive an understanding of this unsolved problem as we possibly can. Um, And then we stumbled upon he doesn't like to read. All right. One reason that he wouldn't come to reading group. And we drilled further on that. You don't like to read. Well, I like to read on my own. I don't like reading aloud. And I don't like listening to other people read. All right, so now we've got buttons, dirt, somebody whispering in his ear. Um, And I don't like to read aloud, and I don't like to listen to others read aloud. We've got five different things going on now when all we started with – all, by the way, possibly requiring a different solution, but all flowing from the why is he having difficulty coming to reading group. Um, To tell you the truth, the one I probably would have run with, the one that felt like – and sometimes you end up with just five different things to solve, and that's – got five different things to solve. But sometimes you say to yourself, you know, I have a feeling – Just based on what he's saying to me, not not me being a genius, but just based on what he's saying to me, that the one that I think is probably going to trump the others, not that one has to, is the him not liking reading aloud. Let me hear more about that one. Other kids make fun of you when you make a mistake. Ah, others make fun of you when you make a mistake. And is that the same reason that you have trouble listening to other people read? Yes, I don't like to see other people being made fun of either. Now, I could ask the following question, and this is this is a little bit more in-depth drilling, but that's okay. We've got a few minutes left. I could say to the kid, tell me, let's go through the reasons that it's hard for you to come to reading group, and tell me which of these seems to be biggest to you. And sometimes I'll have kids use a rating scale. If biggest is not going to be easy for them, I'll say, One meaning it's a problem, but not that big. Five meaning that's really big. Four meaning that's pretty big. Three, eh. Two, not that big, but not so much a one. I might have said to him, um, of all of those, what number would you give to kids making fun of you when you read aloud? We didn't do this, but I think he would have said five. How about kids making fun of other kids when they read out loud? Four. How about your friend talking in your ear? Mm, Two. How about buttons in your pants? Mm, One and a half. How about the floor being dirty? Three and a half. Tell me more about the floor being dirty. Well, my mom gets mad at me if I come home and there's sticky stuff on my pants. So now we've got a bit of a sense of priority that's a good thing. But I guess the main point is it's highly likely that the unsolved problem is going to morph into many unsolved problems. And one of our goals when we're drilling is to try to get a sense of, well, the more I drill here, the more I learn. The more I learn, the more I get a better sense of what's big and what's not so big. That's a good thing. that answer the question?
3: Yes. Yeah.
2: Any other...
1: The- Go ahead. Good. Yep. Sorry. One
2: thing that I'd like to bring up is I think it was kind of difficult timing for T when we did this. I don't ah. know if she was going through a lot because you know it was our lead up to our spring break and there was just so many things going on. But in general, in all of her classes, she was she seemed more frustrated than normal, and also her attendance wasn't as good, which is very unusual for T. So we did have a little trouble getting meeting times with her because she was not in the classes as frequently as she typically is. So I just wanted to Got point it. that out as well.
1: That's that's good to know. And, you know, that stuff happens in schools um, that kids, you know, schools are busy places. Collaborative problem solving requires that we carve out time. Sometimes we carve out time, which is hard enough to do, and then things don't quite go according to plan for us because the student either wasn't there or the timing wasn't right. Um luckily, I think that if we are and you all are committed to the process, um carving out the time, we'll we'll get there. Um we'll have enough times that the student is available to us to actually get the job done. I uh, I'm ecstatic with how you all have done so far. Let's as our game plan, because we now only have about a minute and a half left, as our game plan for next week, are you all in next week on Monday? Yes. Good, because we'll do the program here in Boston, and this is probably unique to Boston, it's Patriots Day, it's the running of the marathon, but that's not going to stop us from doing collaborative problem solving at school with any town high school. Do you want to try to go back to tea? and follow up on some of these, and we'll talk in greater detail next week about what more we're learning. And then what we should also do next week is expand our efforts to another student in the building.
0: Okay, yes. I yeah. think right.
1: Sound like a plan? No.
0: Yeah.
1: Good. Then let's leave it at that for today, and certainly feel free to email with me with anything that comes up between now and then that you all want to make sure we talk about, and we'll go from there.
2: So should we have the student picked out ahead of time, or would you like to air the process of choosing
1: a student? Um, why don't you all pick somebody? Your next high-profile frequent flyer.
3: We've got lots of them.
1: Then you <laughs> should, uh, well, just uh, drop a pencil <laughs> on a piece of paper and whoever it is.
3: Great. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Take care, all. Thank, Thank you,
3: all.
1: you. Bye-bye. And uh, that's going to do it for us today here on collaborative problem solving at school. Thanks for listening and hope you're finding it to be helpful. Talk to you next week.